Amen. I do ask you to turn in your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 15. And when we left Mark's Gospel, Jesus, we left it to do a few messages on the subject of heaven. When we left Mark's Gospel, Jesus had been sentenced to die in the worst miscarriage of justice ever to take place on planet Earth. And really, the the worst imaginable injustice. There couldn't have been a worse injustice than what was done to Jesus. Here is God in human form, the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, condemned to die at the hands of sinful men as a guilty criminal. And when you consider that, we might ask, is this a testimony to the fact that we live in a universe where evil reigns supreme, where there's no ultimate justice, where there's no punishing of wrong, no rewarding of right? Do we live in a universe that's spinning out of control, where might makes right? And the answer is not at all, quite the opposite. Because Peter tells us in his Pentecost sermon that Jesus was delivered up to die by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That this great injustice, the greatest injustice ever perpetrated on planet Earth, was actually the plan of God. Although it was the height of injustice, it was ultimately a carrying out of the sovereign and superintending will of God. This was God's plan in his infinite wisdom to save a people. That the just one, would die for the unjust ones to save them so that God can maintain his justice because sin was punished and still be free to justify the ungodly. That was the plan in God's infinite wisdom, that the righteous Jesus would die for unrighteous ones such as we are. And so God planned the death of his son for the redemption of his people. But in saying that, Are we saying that those who were humanly involved in the sentencing of Jesus to death were not accountable and were not guilty? Again, we answer no, not at all. We have seen that the parties responsible historically for the sentencing of Jesus to death were three. First of all, there was Pilate. He was the Roman governor who was, in God's providence, assigned to deal with the case. And we saw how Pilate was convinced of Jesus' innocence. And he made repeated and fervent attempts to declare that innocency and to try to get Jesus off the hook. But in the end, Pilate was guilty of gross moral cowardice because he gave in to the threats of the Jewish leaders and the clamor of the crowd, and he sentenced an innocent man to die by crucifixion. Pilate was guilty. But even more guilty were the Jewish leaders. Jesus says so in John 19, 11, where he says they have the greater sin in the matter. You know, Pilate was kind of an unwilling, unwitting, uncomfortable participant in this scenario. He really didn't choose to be there. He would have rather gotten out of it and had Jesus exonerated. Not so with the religious leaders. They were the protagonists. They were the initiators of the plot to kill Jesus. They schemed. They instigated They agitated until their wicked end was eventually accomplished. From their long-standing and deep-seated animosity toward Jesus, 
to, toward their, to their illegal arrest of Jesus and the false accusations they made against him, all the way to their agitation of the crowd and their intimidation of Pilate. They bear the lion's share of guilt for sentencing Jesus to die. Pilate, the priests, but then you had the people, the multitude. Were they innocent bystanders? Were they innocent dupes? To be sure, they were intimidated by their leaders, but that doesn't account alone for their betrayal of Jesus. They knew about Jesus. His reputation had preceded him. They knew he was a man who went about doing good. Perhaps they had even been at some of the meetings where he had healed people and taught. Maybe some of them were the recipients of his mercy. They knew about Jesus. They knew he was a good man. They heard Pilate insisting on his innocence and trying to get him exonerated. But the people were guilty because in the end, according to another gospel, they actually cried out, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Yeah, they were intimidated by the leaders, but they were guilty for giving in to the pressure of their leaders. So Pilate, the priests, and the people all bear responsibility for sentencing Jesus to die, even though it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. There's where we say the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man go hand in hand, and we must embrace both. Well, this morning we come to the next phase in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. With the sentence of death by crucifixion upon him, he is handed over to the Roman soldiery, and at that hands, he will experience cruel mockery. And that's the subject for this morning, the mocking of Jesus. Verses 16 to 20 of Mark 15. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. We're going to see the scene of the mockery, the forms of the mockery, and then the pain of the mockery. The scene of the mockery. The mockery was in front of vulgar pagan soldiers. In verse 16, it says, The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium. This is in Greek aule. It's probably the court, the outer court, that is surrounded by the palace building. So it would have been a large courtyard area. And as they prepare to make a mockery of Jesus, they call together all the, the cohort. What was a cohort? A cohort was about one-tenth of a legion. A Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers, so we're talking about 600 soldiers. When combined with auxiliary troops, it could have been upwards of 1,000. The leader of a cohort was known as a kiliarch, the, the word for thousand. And there, um, these were the soldiers, many of them auxiliaries, uh, non-Jewish, of course, uh, who were called upon to guard the palace where, where Pilate the governor was. William Hendrickson 
notes that these soldiers may have been recruited from Syria and have spoken Aramaic and been somewhat familiar with Jewish ways. Now, when it says the, they, the, all, all the cohort, it doesn't mean that all 600 or all 1,000 of the men were there. But there were a lot of soldiers that were there to make a mockery of Jesus. And for these vulgar men, it would have been something of a, a welcome diversion from the tension. This was the week of the feast. And whenever there was a feast, the city of Jerusalem was thronged with people. And you know how it is with a, a city that hosts the Olympics. The police are on high alert, right? There's a lot of tension. Or a city hosting the Super Bowl or any major sporting event, the police are on high alert. And so these soldiers would have been on high alert. It would have been a tense time for them with all the people thronging into the city. And so this little mocking of this pretend king would have been a, an enjoyable diversion for them from the tension of the week. That was the scene of the mockery. What about the forms of the mockery? I want to point to three aspects of the mockery, three ways that Jesus was here mocked. But first, let's consider the very word for mock or mockery. It's a Greek word that means to play with, to trifle with. That Greek word in the Jewish translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, was used in Jeremiah 10.15 to describe Idols. Listen to Jeremiah 10, 15. They are worthless, a work of mockery. Idols are worthy of being mocked. And doesn't God mock the idols in the Old Testament? He does. Psalm 115, they have eyes, they can't see, they have ears, they can't hear, they have feet, they can't walk. God mocks the false idols because he's jealous for his glory. I have to confess to you that in these days I've been enjoying Babylon B that sarcastic, oh no, satirical, um, whatever it's called. And I read an article I shared with some of you where the, 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 one of the Babylon Bee said, talked about the moral imperative of satire. When people will not be reasoned with, when you can't have a rational communication, the next best thing is to mock. And so they mock the irrationality of our day, that we cannot define what a woman is. A man can think he turns into a woman, and a woman thinks he, she turns into a man. And people will not reason with you about this. There's a place for holy mockery, holy satire, because God does it. Well, the same word used of mocking idols is used for what they did to Jesus. To mock is to, 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 to mock someone is to disdain him, to see him as of little value to treat him in a trifling way, to laugh at, to belittle, to make sport of, maybe even mimicking. And that's what these soldiers did to Jesus. They saw him not as a true king, but as a pretender. They saw no value in his claims, no value in his person. And they saw him as an appropriate object for their play, their fun. He was someone to trifle with, someone to make fun of, to treat in a belittling manner, to show contempt to. And again, these were soldiers. The life of the soldier was dangerous. He was often flirting with death. He was often called upon to shed blood. And uh, as we know, with soldiers, with those in police work, my father, having been a state trooper his whole career, it can have a hardening effect. 
because you see so much evil out there. And so these soldiers were hardened men. And again, this would have been a little bit of a break from either the tedium or from the danger that they faced. Let's have a little fun with this pretend king. So how do they mock Jesus first? There was mock kingly attire. Verse 17, they dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Oh, so you're a king, are you? Well, you need to look like a king. And so they dressed him in purple. The purple was from a species of shellfish from which the dye was extracted, and it was, you know, to make purple. Matthew uses the word scarlet. It was a, a royal color. And the likelihood is that they had picked up some old, discarded, faded, and worn soldier's mantle and draped it over Jesus' naked body because they had taken his own cloak off of him. And they mockingly intend to mimic him as a, in a stately royal purple robe. That rough, dirty piece of material would have stung because he had been scourged and it would have rubbed up against the, the wounds of his scourging and it would have hurt him physically. But to this, they added a crown of thorns. The Near East has a, a variety of prickly plants and which one they chose to put on Jesus, we, we cannot know. But they wove a mock crown and they pressed it down on Jesus' head. This would have caused rivulets of blood to flow from his head down across his face and, and his neck. A king, after all, needs a crown. If we find any significance to the thorns, some commentators make this connection. When man fell into sin, which we're going to read next week in Genesis chapter 3, the earth was cursed, and it brought forth thorns and thistles. And some commentators believe there's an intentional connection there. The thorns represent the curse upon the world because of sin. Jesus bearing the crown of thorns is a picture of Jesus bearing the curse for us that he might deliver us from that curse. That's a possibility. And so, oh, yet another kingly piece of kingly attire to complete the outfit. The king needs a scepter. And so in verse uh, wherever it is there, it says they, they put a reed. They gave him a reed. Matthew says they put a, a reed, a stick, in his right hand. The reed, the scepter, is a symbol of the king's authority and power. And every king needs not only a royal robe and a crown, but he needs a scepter. And for this king, a stick will do. So there Jesus stands. In the shame of his nakedness, except for a grimy, faded old soldier's mantle thrown painfully over his torn body, his kingly robe, a crown of twisted thorny vines in place of the diamond-studded gold for a crown, and a scepter, a plain stick. And so Jesus is mocked. He's treated with contempt. He's trifled with being dressed in mock kingly attire. But then he's given mock kingly acclaim, verse 18. And they began to acclaim him, hell, king of the Jews. A king is to be shown honor. One bows before a king. One honors a king with an appropriate greeting of respect. The Romans would 
greet their emperor with Ave Caesar or Ave Kaiser, however they said it in, in the Latin. Ave Kaiser, probably. So after G- dressing Jesus up in mock kingly attire, they pretend to show him kingly acclaim. Hail, King of the Jews! And we can picture these rough-hewn soldiers bowing down in mock reverence to Jesus. We can hear their mocking laughter as they sarcastically pretend to revere him as a king. But it's not enough for these vulgar, cruel men to make fun of Jesus in that way. They have to go beyond that and actually make a brutal physical attack upon him. Verse 19, they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. Like I said, the scepter is a symbol of a king's power. Imagine a king being able to have someone come and wrench the scepter from his hand and then begin beating him on the head with it. What kind of power and authority would that king possess? They were mocking Jesus in this way, and as they hit him repeatedly on the head, it would press those thorns more fully into his scalp and cause more blood and rivulets of blood to roll down his face and his neck. And they were mocking his supposed powerlessness, taking the very scepter of his authority and beating him with it, as if to say, you're a king, you have no power. On top of that, they added the most degrading insult one human being can give to another. They spit at him. So this was ongoing in perfect tense. While beating him and spitting at him, they kept kneeling and bowing in in mock reverence. One soldier after another, kneeling and bowing in mock reverence, spitting and hitting. What can we say about these forms of mockery? What kind of sub-bestial cruelty is displayed by these men. And these men had no personal acts to grind against Jesus. They did not even know him. He had done nothing against them. There was no animosity that he had aroused in them. Even if it had been a mere man and not who it was, what they did to him would have been despicable. But finally... By way of exposition, I want you to consider the pain of the mockery. We saw the scene of it. We saw the different forms. What about the pain of the mockery? Mocking is a form of attack that is felt very deeply and painfully in the human soul. I went to public school. Some of you went to public school. I used to be one who's very much a fan of Christian liberty when it comes to education. I don't think I can. It's a rare case where I could encourage someone to go to the government school today because of the propaganda, you know. But I went to public school years ago, and I still have pictures in my mind of those children and teenagers who are mocked. I remember their names. I can see their faces. Artie swears. My neighborhood was a suburban, middle-class neighborhood. This boy clearly came from a poor home. He was probably abused and neglected. His clothes were dirty. He was unkempt. He was unwashed. At times he smelled. Artie swears. And he was made fun of ruthlessly. I can still see his face. Another boy, James Streelman. He had teeth that stuck out 
a little more than usual. And he went through all school with the name Bucky. Not because, Clark, he was a deer hunter, but because he had what they called at the time, buck teeth. And I still see his face. Never remember seeing him smile. He was given that derisive nickname because of something that was less than normal in his visage. Cruel. Children are cruel. I can say by the common grace of God, it was pre-Christian for me. I was not a mocker, but nor was I a defender because I wasn't a principled Christian at that time. Kids are cruel. Mocking is cruel. Scorn is painful, and it has an effect. And this experience for Jesus would have been very humiliating and painful. We have to remember that Jesus was fully God, but Jesus was also fully human, tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And Jesus experienced the emotions that we experience. The book we're reading upcoming for the men's book is men's uh, Book a month is the emotional life of Jesus. It's a wonderful expose of the emotional life of Jesus. And Jesus had a spectrum of human emotions, yet without sin. And what was the pain that Jesus would have experienced by this mocking? Well, it was the pain of shame. What is shame? I think I looked up the definition, and it goes like this. Shame is a painful sense of guilt or degradation, degradation, caused by consciousness of guilt or of anything degrading, unworthy, or immodest. It's a sensitiveness or susceptibility to humiliation. Now, from this definition, we see that there is a shame that comes from sin. When we sin, we ought to feel shame. Where did that begin? It began in the garden. We're not there yet, but next week we're going to see Genesis chapter 3. The man and the woman sinned. And when they sinned, they became guilty. And when they became guilty, they became ashamed. And they wanted to hide. They tried to hide from God, as impossible as that is. And they tried to hide from each other, covering themselves with fig leaves, whereas before they were naked and unashamed, there was nothing to hide. And so shame came with guilt, which came with sin. Here are some cases in the Bible where, where shame is associated with sin. Luke 14.9 tells a, a parable about a man who obviously thought too highly of himself, and when he comes to a banquet, he takes the, the highest seat of honor. And Jesus says, don't do that, because you might be asked, quote, to give place to this man, and then in disgrace or shame, you proceed to occupy the last place. You thought too highly of yourself. You went to the head, and the host has to say, sorry, um, that belongs to someone else. And in shame where you're thinking too highly of yourself, your pride, you have to take the lowest seat. In 2 Corinthians 4.2, the apostle says, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. When you walk in craftiness, when you distort or pervert or adult the word of God, it is a shameful thing. And you ought to feel shame because you're guilty of violating the word of God. In 1 John 2.28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, when Christ comes back, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. You don't want to be living a sinless, careless life when Jesus returns. And so there is a shame that is associated with sin. And that's a good thing. Because shame 
serves the good purpose of reminding us that we've done wrong. We need to repent and confess and run to the Lord Jesus, whose blood cleanses us from all sin. So that kind of sin shame is a good thing. If you have an outburst of anger, you ought to be ashamed because you're guilty and you need to repent and confess. If you look with lust, you ought to feel some shame because you're guilty of sin and you ought to repent and confess. When we sin with our tongues and hurt people with our tongues, we ought to feel a sense of shame because we've sinned. Children, when you in the home lie to your mother or father or hit your brother or sister or pretend that you don't hear your parents when they're telling you to do something, you ought to feel ashamed about that because you're guilty of sin and you need to confess that. There is such a thing as sin shame. But here's the problem. Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus could not have experienced shame because of sin, because he never committed sin. And yet Jesus did experience shame. How do we know that? Hebrews 12, 2. Listen, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, notice, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus experienced shame. And I dare say that in this experience, he felt a sense of shame from the insult, from being falsely accused, mocked, laughed at, spit on, struck with a stick. He was being treated shamefully. Dr. Ed Welch, in his modern-day classic, When People Are Big, God is Small, helps us understand this. He says there are two kinds of shame. There is sin shame, shame that we bring on ourselves because we sin and we're guilty, but there's another kind of shame. He calls it victim shame. It's not the result of sinning. It's the result of being sinned against, being victimized and dishonored by others. Ed Welch says this, sin shame is something we bring on ourselves. Victimization shame is done to us. Then he goes on to say, Jesus, he felt shame, but he was innocent. He suffered the shame of others that was placed on him. Jesus felt shame, not because he was guilty of any sin, but because he was so aware of who he was in contrast to the way he was being treated. He was aware of his own integrity, his own purity, his own truthfulness, his own righteousness, and yet he was being treated like a liar and like a false pretender and a deceiver. And he was experienced shame. He felt shame when they arrested him. Mark 14, 48, listen to Jesus. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? You're treating me shamefully. I'm not a robber. I don't deserve this treatment. It was a victimization shame. And surely Jesus felt shame in his humanity on this occasion when he was treated this way by these soldiers. He was unworthy of the degrading treatment. They mocked him as a pretender king, but he was a real king. They mocked him as lacking majesty and dignity, but he possessed such majesty that we're told that the angels in heaven hide their face from the glory of him who sits on the throne. They mocked him as lacking power by beating him with his own stick scepter. 
But we're told in the Bible he had the authority to call 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, as the hymn says. They mocked him as a worthless wretch of a creature, but he was the infinitely glorious creator. And so there was shame, painful shame, not associated with sin, but the consciousness of his perfect moral rectitude and essential glory, coupled with the treatment by wicked men who made him out to be the worst of criminals. This would have produced exquisite and acute pain in the holy soul of Jesus, an anguish beyond our imagination. And friends, I I want you to um, imagine the sense of humiliation that even a mere man, aside from Jesus being God, a mere man being subjected to this, he would have felt the shame and the humiliation. Certainly an innocent man, but even a guilty man, even if he was guilty, it would have been shameful and he would have felt the pain in his human soul. This was repulsive to Jesus. Now, as I make some applications, I want you to get a picture of this. Uh, I tried to paint something of a mental picture. Can you picture this scene? Picture it. Picture Jesus with that ratty old Roman robe, a symbol of royalty. Instead of gold and diamonds, a, a crown of thorns making him bleed, a stick for a scepter. Picture that. And Jesus being the object of the mocking cruelty of these vulgar, low-life soldiers. Get a mental picture of it in your mind in order to make these applications. As you bring into focus this picture, this mental picture of this mocking of Jesus, bring into focus the utter depravity of the human heart. What do we learn from the mocking of Jesus? We learn something of anthropology, the doctrine of man. Are there any people around today who still have an anthropology that says man is basically good? There probably are, right? It's basically good. Yeah, he's basically good at at root. Man is not basically good. Man by nature is wicked and vile and hostile to God. And these soldiers didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know who he was dealing with. But it doesn't matter. The fact that they were just treating a fellow human being that way was sub-bestial. And I mean that when I say sub-bestial. The animals don't treat their own that way, do they? Because of the fall, the animals kill in order to eat. The animals may kill or harm to protect their territory. But the animals don't subject one of their own to to torture and and gleefully delight in, in torturing one of their own unto death. But man does. We are not good. We are not good. We are depraved. And you know, this is true today. You could wish to say, well, with our advancements in education and technology, we are not like we once were. But it's an amazing testimony to the truthfulness of the Bible and the historic fall of man that we are no better today. We have artificial intelligence. We have done amazing things with our God-given intelligence and our technology. 
but we are still such, still as brutal and cruel and vile as they were then. And we read of our Myanmar. Some of us get daily reports of, of Burma, Myanmar, and the civil war going on there, and the Burmese army going from village to village, burning homes, hacking people to death, dropping bombs and killing children and women indiscriminately. The genocide that's going on there. Nigeria, where the Muslims are going village to Christian village. One week they kill 40, another week they kill 100. Again, shooting and hacking to death Christians, men, women, children. We are just as brutal and vile and violent as we have ever been. And the tens of millions of babies slaughtered in the place that ought to be the safest place in the world for them, their mother's womb. And yet they're poisoned to death or they're dismembered in those wombs. And from our president on down, there is a militant defense of slaughtering children in the womb. Where have we come? Oh, friends, this is a fallen world. We are depraved. We need a savior. We need forgiveness. We need a righteousness outside ourselves. That's the first thing. As you picture Jesus suffering, let it be a picture of the depravity of the human heart. But as you also bring into focus the mocking of Jesus, bring into focus the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. Listen again to Hebrews 12, verse 2, and I want to point something out. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The word despising means to think little of. To think little of. Why did Jesus regard it as a small thing? Because in his humanity, it was no big deal. I can handle this. No. It was a horrendous deal. In his humanity, it was humiliating. It was shameful. And he felt that pain deeply. It wasn't a little thing because it was no big deal. It was a little thing in light of the purpose he had come to fulfill. It did not deter him from carrying out the Father's will. He counted it a little thing for the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy? Well, part of the joy was being restored to glory that he had before. He says in John 75, Father, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was made. Part of his joy was the prospect of restored glory. But the other part of his joy was the prospect of redeemed people. Because Isaiah 53, 11 says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, and here's a piece of it, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He bore with it. He regarded it as something he could endure. It's a little thing. I can handle this. I can take this, not only for the prospect of restored glory, but for the prospect of redeemed people. In other words, Christian, he endured all of that shame and mockery because of his great love for you and me. It's worth it because as a result of this, there will be a people who are justified, made right with God, my Father, whom I will take with me to be myself in eternal heaven. So it not only speaks of the deep depravity of the human heart, it speaks of the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ for you, believer. It wasn't the littleness of the shame, but the greatness of his love that made it a little thing. 
but then a third application as you fix in mind, in your mind's eye, the mocking of Jesus, make sure that you're not ashamed of Jesus. Mark 8.38, which we had studied, Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. Jesus bore shame for us. And this is a picture of the, the mocking, the, um, the mocking shame that he endured for us. We dare not be ashamed of him. As he was willing to bear shame for us, we need to be willing to bear shame for him. And we will not be ashamed before God, but the world will seek to shame us. And we're told this, Jesus predicted, John 15, if they hated me, they hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I took you out of the world. The world's going to hate you. Peter says, 1 Peter 4.12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming upon you as though something strange were happening to you. And John weighs in in his first letter, marvel not if the world hates you. We will be hated. The world will try to shame us for believing in Jesus. But we dare not be ashamed of him or his words when he was willing to bear such shame for us. And what does it look like today? How is the world trying to shame you? And I feel an obligation to continually equip you and strengthen you against it. The world will try to shame you because when you hold to biblical ethics, biblical morality, biblical truth, such as we read in Genesis 2, that God made marriage, he made male and female, and there will only ever be two genders, and only man and woman are to be married. When you believe this which has been believed for centuries today, you will be made to feel ashamed. You will be called a hater. You will be called a homophobe and a transphobe because you don't fall into line with the current immoral ideology. I heard podcast, I heard personally from her, Rosaria Butterfield, former lesbian activist, wonderfully converted a couple decades ago, married a Presbyterian pastor. And recently she repented because until recently, she was agreeing, for politeness sake, to call somebody by their preferred gender. And she said, I realized that was wrong. That was not loving. That was perpetuating a lie. And I repent. Wonderful to see, because these days, few repent. They have a, a course correction, but few come out and say, it was wrong. Repent. That was sin. Dear Rosaria Butterfield is saying that. It's not loving to call somebody by their preferred gender because you're helping them perpetuate the lie that they're believing. I saw a man on the street interview at UCLA, and this man was shrewdly going around asking people, is it okay if I identify as a person of an opposite race? I'm a white man. Is it okay that I identify as a black man, black person? And they would say, no, no, that would be a dishonor to our race, that you're pretending to be something. Well, well, why? Why? Well, they'd say, because it's a matter of biology. Oh. And then he would say, well, what's the difference between a man pretending he's a woman and a woman and pretending I'm black when I'm white or white when... 
And you could see these very intelligent UCLS students just scrambling for words. It was really powerful. You will be shamed, or the world will try to shame you. Don't be ashamed. Be loving, be gracious. Don't be ashamed of biblical morality, biblical ethics. Shout it from the rooftops because it's the truth people need to set them free. Do it lovingly, do it graciously. Don't let the world shame you. And I see myself as trying to be a voice against the devil and against the world to arm you, the people of God, to stand firm and not be ashamed of Jesus' words in our generation. Two more quick applications. Understand from the mocking of Jesus the sympathy of Christ with shame. Jesus knows shame. First of all, he bore shame in order to relieve our sin shame. By bearing our shame, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, so that when we stand before God at the moment of our death or his return, we will have no shame, but be welcomed as perfectly justified sinners because he took all the shame along with all the guilt that we deserved. But not only that, some of you experience not only sin shame when we sin, but victimization shame because of things that have been done to you, because of the ways that you have been treated by others. You feel a sense of shame, but it's not your doing. It's not your sin. It's things that have been done to you or told to you or ways you've been treated by others. And so you have this victimization shame. That's what Jesus experienced. And he did so, so that you can go to him and he understands. And not only understands, but he'll help you sort it out. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, uh, yep, sorry, I was in Timothy. You know the text where it says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're feeling a sense of shame, but it's not due to sin. See, if it's due to sin, there's a remedy. Confess your sin. Claim the blood of Jesus. You're forgiven. That gets rid of the guilt. That gets rid of the shame. But what if it's victimization shame? I haven't done anything. There's nothing to repent of, but I feel worthless. I feel like trash because of the way I've been treated or spoken to. Go to Jesus. He knows what you're going through because he experienced it. He can sympathize, but he can also give you the grace to sort it out and understand, wait a minute, I don't need to feel that shame. That was put on me from outside. It's not from sin. And I shake it off and deny it. And I will see myself as you see me, Lord, as a beloved, justified, adopted, redeemed child of yours and not what the voices that shamed me are telling me about myself. And if you're an unbeliever, please understand this is not the end of the story. Jesus endured this shame and it gets worse. He gets crucified, but that's not the end of the story. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And if you're an unbeliever in Jesus, you need to get to the place where you see that I am a guilty sinner and you need to be ashamed of your sin and you need to come to Jesus for forgiveness, 
He will remove the sin shame because he'll remove the guilt. And then he'll also work with you in terms of the feelings of worthlessness and shame as he adopts you as his child. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you endured and you thought little of it, not because it was little, but compared to the reward of redeeming a people, it was worth it to you. Help us never to be ashamed of you or your words, but be willing to bear shame for your name.